Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. else when i think about you i touch my audio device and i listen to the stitch wrestling podcast i want to thank the divinals for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling too bad about the the divinals they are a good band they were a good band but they're only known for that one kind of novelty song this is a wicked good podcast and it is the people's podcast both these claims have been proven by math and science before we get rolling I want to give you another unbelievable reason why to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group if you have not already. After last week's podcast, John Horton was good enough to tell us that he grew up a few doors down from the Welcher Catabulus, lived a few doors down from me in the 50s through the 70s. And he had promised Watts sponsorship money, and that's why he was now known as the Welcher. He was, among other things, in the liquors business, and his family still is. And he has a picture up on the Facebook group of Cats Liquor and Spirits or whatever it was. So, John, thank you for that. We now know the story about Catsabulas the Welcher after all these years. Ah. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I do a lot of cool retweeting generally of cool wrestling stuff. Just search for John McAdam and follow me. I do this about once a month. If you'd like to donate to the show, if you'd like to throw a few bucks our way, say thank you. My PayPal address is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small. If you want to throw me $5, that's fine. No amount is too large either. And with that all said, I want to bring on our returning guest, Mr. Chris Tabar. Chris, how you doing? Oh, John, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. I guess you didn't learn your lesson the first two times. <laughs> I, I learned very slowly, sir. So we have, when this show comes out, we will have just missed the 35th anniversary of the 1986 Parade of Champions, the David Von Erich Memorial Show, which was ne- the next year was going to be the David and Mike show. And there was a lot going on in wrestling during this time. We're going to talk about all of it. Within a month, we had WrestleMania 2, we had the Crockett Cup, we had the AWA's Wrestle Rock, and now we've got the 1986 Texas Stadium show. Tabe, in general, what did you think of this event? I thought it was kind of mediocre, and it kind of felt like there wasn't really a main event, even though you had the Von Erich six-man tag title, and you got Rick Rude defending the quote-unquote world title. It just felt like it felt more like a, a like a house show, like maybe a Fort Worth show rather than a Texas stadium. Because, you know, the previous years you had the NWA world title. You had all kinds of stuff going on. This one, yeah, not so much. Little background. At the end of 1985, World Class did this thing where they said, we're leaving the NWA because Ric Flair keeps getting himself disqualified. We're no longer recognizing him as the world heavyweight champion. So they took their American heavyweight champion, who was Rick Rude, and declared him the world-class world's heavyweight champion. And I was a fan back then, and I definitely took a wait-and-see attitude about how I felt about this title. You know, um, 
I think Rick is a tremendous. Well, he eventually became a tremendous wrestler in 1985-86. He wasn't, and I don't feel like he was like at the stature, at the level to be your first world champion. Rick Rude 1992, maybe. Rick Rude 1986, not so much. And it kind of just looked like a like a bush league moment where your guy, he's the American champion one minute, he's the world champion the next, without really anything happening. It just it felt kind of cheap. And you know, one thing I noticed too, they announced that the this belt can change hands on disqualification. So guys like Rick Rude, if you want to go out and push the referee or something in order to keep your title wrong, the title is going to switch hands. That sounded good on paper until, and I remember them doing this. They did it with Rick Rude. They did it with Chris Adams, who eventually beat Rick Rude. Like, they'd get on TV and wrestle non-title matches and, and lose those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. And, you know, I don't, did they ever really, did they actually ever have a title switch on a DQ? I don't remember them actually doing that. They but did that, not but, do that. As you know, I went through about the world class week by week, uh, thanks to the, the WWE Network, rest in peace. And, um, but I stopped with the, this Texas stadium show, so I didn't carry on. So I never, I didn't actually find out if they, if they did any title changes by DQ and if they didn't, what's the point? Wasn't that the whole, whole issue is that titles, there were too many disqualifications and title matches. And then all of a sudden there aren't any just because Ric Flair has gone. Yeah. Here's how I kind of looked at it. Okay. Now the champion has to stand and fight. There's no reason to go out and get disqualified. You you have to win the match. That, that's kind of how I looked at it in my looking at wrestling in a kind of a Marks way, the way I did in 86. Okay, you know, I, I can buy that explanation. If you know disqualification's not an option, then all you've got left is to try and win. Okay, I can live with that. Yeah, and I kind of went through my mental Rolodex of every world-class champion from uh, Rick Rude, who was in the beginning, to Kerry Von Erich, who eventually lost the title and had the title merge when he lost to Jerry Lawler, which he lost. He didn't lose on it by pinfall, of course, because it's Kerry. And I can't, I can't think of a single one that changed on DQ. So it, you're, you know, you, you kind of think they'd use that to like take the belt off Kevin Von Erich or something, like you know, a little bit, a little bit of controversy. Well, and just to remind people that it actually can happen, even if you know, if it is. You, you know, you do something with Carrie or Kevin where the heel pulls the referee in the way and he gets punched and well, but Carrie punched the referee. He gets disqualified, that yeah. kind of thing. Although that's kind of a cheap way to lose a title, but you know, maybe do that just to remind the fans that it could actually happen. Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about this later. Um, I actually thought Mark Lawrence did a really good job in commentary during the matches that he broadcast, but we'll get into that more later. And another thing too, like with Rick Rude having the belt, the main event of the show was Rick Rude versus Bruiser Brody. They did a fan vote where you sent in a ballot and said, okay, this is the guy I want wrestling for the championship, but they eliminated the Von Erichs. They said the Von Erichs had to challenge the fabulous Freebirds for the six man titles. And thus none of the Von Erichs would be eligible. Yeah. And, so, that, I mean, that eliminates pretty much all of your good challengers. So the only other he- face of any stature at all is Bruiser Brody. Or I guess you could go to Chris Adams, but Chris Adams, is, is he's quote-unquote still injured with his one eye. So he can't. he's not going to wrestle a world champion. Eh, I didn't like the setup. I didn't. Yeah, we can get into it later. I didn't like the match either, but whatever. <laughs> you know what, though? This event is definitely missing the star power of a Ric Flair. No questions asked. 
Yeah, it just it feels it just it feels flat. Like there's just not that one special match because even the the six man with all of the Von Erichs, you know, with Kevin injured, with Mike still recovering from I think his shoulder or whatever it was, you know. So now you've got uh, was it Sean or Steve Simpson in there and yeah. Lance Von Erich. It, there's just there's nothing there. And then of course every guy is wrestling twice too, except for the you know they've got so many guys doing double duty as well. <laughs> yeah, that that is definitely in my notes. And now I came in. I I know this. I mean they had this match. They had Brody versus Rude. They had those Von Erichs win the titles back, the six man titles back from the Freebirds, and they were clearly setting up for a Kerry Von Erich Rick Rude feud for the world title. So at least they they kind of know where they're going, but that got derailed. Yeah. Yeah. They, you can, you can see, I mean, and when they, just by the creation of the title, you can see that the whole goal is to eventually make carry a world champion again. That no question about it. You know, after he, he only had it for 19 days in 84. Yeah. There's no question that they're looking to make him a world champion again. Yeah. Make him the world champion and build the promotion around him. And like I said, we'll talk a little bit about what happened, but as we all know, that got derailed. Now this show drew over 24,000 fans, which can be looked at two ways. They had about 30,000 the year before. They had about 40,000 the year before that. So we're definitely trending in the wrong direction. That said, 24,000 fans for this event in a vacuum, I think is very impressive. Oh, I agree. You know, I uh, I had in my head when, when I went to rewatch it that they actually drew something like 10 or 12,000, but then I'm watching... And, you know, you look at they show shots of the stadium and the stadium looks pretty full, even for an 80,000 seat stadium or whatever Texas stadium was. There was a lot of people there. But then Bill Mercer said that that there was thousands waiting outside. There was a huge traffic jam waiting to get in. I'm like, Bill, Bill, they do this every Sunday in the fall with the Cowboys drawing way more than this. I don't think traffic is going to be a problem. <laughs> well, it, it, it's Von Eric land. They have to make stuff up. You know, they have to say it's a sellout, even when you see empty seats. But I mean, the crowd looked good on TV. It absolutely did. Yeah. Kudos to them for drawing that crowd with, with no Ric Flair, with Kevin injured, with no Von Eric wrestling for a world title. You know, kudos to them for drawing that. No question. That's a great house for them to draw. It is. And I think too, like this is their WrestleMania. And in a way, it's almost like the brand is what draws like WrestleMania now sells out before they announce the first match. And and maybe people just come to this because, hey, it's the the David Von Erich Memorial. Yeah, I'm sure that's at least part of it. No question. All right. Now, we're going to talk about the matches I have when I'm not sure is a correct listing as far as the event in sequence. But I look at this. They start with Sunshine against Missy Hyatt in a mud match and i'm thinking okay if they put this out there first you get to clean up get the mud out of there and then get rolling with your show i saw a listing that had that shown first i kind of think that that had to be last doesn't that make sense because then later in the show missy although her hair kind of looked like she might have washed it her hair she was you know she came out later and was clean and then of course we didn't see sunshine again later I don't know. Maybe it was first. Maybe it, I, it's either. It's got to be either first or last. There's no way it's in the middle of the card. No, you're right. It, it's not going to be in the middle of the card. And I kind of think now. I just this just threw, came out of my brain. The Von Erichs are going on last. They're not going to have a mud match. You know, headlining against the Von Erichs. So I, I'm thinking it was first. 
Well, no, I don't. The Von Erichs couldn't have been last because they had the the barbed wire match with Gordy and Brody, and unless Gordy somehow managed to patch himself up to be not at all bloody after the the barbed wire match, that had to have been last. Okay. All right. Then, then I definitely don't have the correct sequence <laughs> of matches. Um, what can I say? I did my best, but the first match we will discuss is the mud match with Missy Hyatt and Sunshine. There was no TV for this. I don't think they recorded it because I think it would have come out by now. They were very specific on television on this. This is not going to be shown on TV. If you want to see this, you got to come out to Texas Stadium. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know. This this seems really low rent to me. It just... I know that they didn't show it on TV, and and I know you know that in the eighties, they wrestling was really low brow at times. But this seems like really really low brow, even for uh, a nineteen eighties wrestling promotion. You know, although I certainly understand the appeal of you know Missy Hyatt and Sunshine rolling around together. You put that <laughs> ball perfectly on the tee for me, sir. <laughs> I, one of my big wrestling philosophies, and I do have this. Some people say, oh, you know, you should have something for everyone. And Paul Heyman in the 90s knew what he was talking about when he, he promoted ECW as, hey, it's not for everyone. I've never believed that wrestling should have something for everyone, and this is your prime case. I mean, some guys are absolutely going to want to see that. I, I saw... Still photos of it in one of, I think, one of the Napolitano magazines, and I was quite happy with what I had. But at the same time, you are very likely turning off as many people, if not more, than you are turning on. Like, I can see someone saying, you know, I'm not bringing my kids to the show. Absolutely. You know, yeah, you're looking at that. Hey, mom, I want to go see Rick Rude and Bruiser Brody. And mom looks at the ads. Wait a minute. They're They're going to have women in a mud match. No way. And especially, what if your what if your daughter's a wrestling fan? You're certainly not going to bring your daughter to that. Yeah. Not a chance. You know, and and for those, I don't think they have this stuff anymore. But like, you know, you had mud wrestling at strip joints. You're you're right, Tabe. It's it's very low brow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that that's what, and I I know that's what they're going for, and that's what they're teasing. That ooh, you might see something. Something might happen. It's just it feels cheap. It's demeaning to both of the women. I wish they hadn't done it. And it just, it doesn't fit the rest of the show. And they, it's just a bad idea. You're right. That's a, well put. It does not fit the rest of the show. If they had this on an ECW show, I would not be complaining because it, it would fit right in. But, you know, they're, they're pushing a family atmosphere with mud wrestling. Yeah. And, and I, and I get that saying it's a family atmosphere when you've got a barbed wire match on the card is kind of funny, but wrestling was always kind of violent and it was okay. Cause the bad guys got their thing, but that just feels like prurient. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's, it should not have been done. No, it, it was a bad idea. And like I said, I, I think it, it probably kept more people away than it drew them in next match that I at least have listed was the missing link and Iceman King Parsons against the one man gang and Skandor Akbar. One man gang kind of did this weird turn, but not turn in 1985. And apparently he's back to being on the side of the bad guys. Yeah. He did a thing where he was like on his own. And so he was kind of he of a heel by himself. And then now he's back with, with Akbar and he gets stuck with the missing link. You know, I, I love one man gang. I was not a fan of him back then. 
when he went to the UWF, I became a fan. I'm even more of a fan now. I love the guy. think he's great, he's, but he's wasted in this match. He is, and by this point, he had been in world class for a long time. I'm, I'm pretty sure he debuted like November, December 1984, and you know, heels like that only have so much of a shelf life, and I, I think he was kind of at the end of his. Yeah, he, he definitely had worn out his welcome, as you can tell, because they're sticking him with Missing Link, who had also been in world class for seemingly 500 years and was going nowhere. So this is just a throwaway to, to give two guys a paycheck. Link, if I recall correctly, had been here in world class since like fall of 1983. They turned him, which I guess keeps him a little bit fresh, but we're looking at over two and a half years now. Yeah, and for a character like that that can't talk and that's a wild man gimmick, that's that is way, way, way past the expiration date. Yeah. So anyway, Lincoln Parsons win this match. Now we go to a match that I thought was incredibly strange. It was the great Kabuki who was getting another big push as a heel uh, with Michael Hayes as his manager. And it was a gauntlet match where he had to beat four opponents. Now, we know how this usually goes, right? Either he beats all four guys or the fourth one beats him. Now, we're supposed to go through Mark Youngblood, Jerry Allen, Steve Simpson, and Chris Adams. Kabuki beats Youngblood, beats Allen, and then he loses clean to Steve Simpson. Yeah, it, the, the match makes no sense, and then you do this weird that weird booking of having the third guy win. Yeah, exactly. Either he beats all four or he loses to the fourth guy. <laughs> when do you ever have him lose to the third? That doesn't make any sense. Here's the only way it makes sense. And this isn't even me defending it. I, I'm just saying sometimes if you book in a nonlinear manner, which they're clearly doing here, it seems more realistic, but that's all I got. I mean, I kind of remember watching this live and throwing up my hands saying, you know, what are they doing there? It looks like they're giving this guy the super push, which they probably shouldn't have by then. Kabuki was kind of toast in Dallas by this point. Well, he'd fl- he had flip-flopped. He'd been in a million angles. He'd been beaten a million times. You know, he'd done the thing with Sunshine, and then he turned on Sunshine. And it, take everything I said about missing Link being old and exp- you know, past his expiration date and add it to even more so to great Kabuki. And then to stick him in a, a handicap match, that just doesn't... <laughs> I don't know what they were really going for here. No, I, I, I totally don't either. It just, it makes no sense, but he had been there forever and I felt bad for Kabuki because it was a really cool novel gimmick in 81, 82 when they first started using it and everyone just copied him. They had Kendo Nagasaki in Florida. They had the, the ninja in mid Atlantic. They have, you know, whoever I'm forgetting, but it, you know, that really rolled Kabuki. Yeah, that was yeah. It was a really cool gimmick, and you know, and he's a pretty decent wrestler. Not spectacular, but decent enough. But you know, a little small. But yeah, it was a it was a neat idea. But yeah, way 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 past due on this one. Yeah, in eighty one eighty two as well. I mean, it, it wasn't such a physique based business, and he did not have a good physique. And by nineteen eighty six, that really stood out. Yeah, and he and he wasn't the tallest guy. I mean, he was. You know, he was a normal-sized Japanese wrestler guy, which is smaller than the average American guy. And it stood out, and he certainly did not look deadly enough to go one against four with one of the four being Chris Adams. 
Yeah, and, and that was the funny part. Like, Chris Adams doesn't even get involved. It's like, I mean, granted, they, they threw us a curveball, which sometimes you need to do in wrestling, but I'm, I, don't, I don't think this was the place for it. Yeah, agreed. All right. Next up, I have Brian Adidas defending the Texas Heavyweight Championship against Steve Regal. What did you think of this match? I thought it was it was okay. You know, two guys that are both okay to decent in the ring. I, I had to laugh at, at the idea of, you know, Steve Regal, the, the former AWA World Tag Team Champion, coming in and, and challenging for the Texas heavyweight title. I thought the match was pretty decent. And actually, my number one thought when I was watching it was, hey, you know, at least World Class is consistent and didn't put their TV title on this show. You know, they, held, they, they reserved that for just their quote-unquote TV shows instead of sticking it on this big card. I don't know why that occurred to me as I'm watching the Texas championship match, but that was my number one thought. (laughs) They, you know, I don't even know who the TV champion was at this point because they didn't feature that on the Dallas show. It was only on the Fort Worth show. And I remember when they used it as a prop to turn sunshine on Jimmy Garvin in 1983, when Johnny Mantell beat Jimmy Garvin for the title and they showed the footage from Fort Worth. I was like, wow, they've got a TV title? Why don't I know about this? Yeah, you know, in that four and a half years of TV shows that I watched, I think they only mentioned it twice. And once was that angle, there might have been one other. They absolutely never talked about it. <laughs> you know, I okay, it's, I, I get kind of having it exclusive to the one Fort Worth show, but it's just bizarre that it, if you didn't watch the Fort Worth show, you had no idea that title even existed. No, you didn't. And they did something kind of interesting with that title like the von erics never held it they said oh you know you have to be on tv every week defending this title and the von erics are in japan or traveling whatever so they they don't challenge for it yeah they treated it like a tv title should be it's strictly wrestles for on tv the guy has to defend it on tv all the time you know no no problem with that it's just weird that it wasn't on the dallas show yeah exactly Now, Brian Adidas is a Texas heavyweight champion. By the way, I watched this match. I thought it was a good match. I'm not saying it was Flair Steamboat, but it was a solid 13 minutes of action. I thought they they kept it going and they did a good job. Yeah, I I agree with that. Like I said, two guys that are pretty decent in the ring, given some time to work. For all the the grief that Brian Adidas and, and Steve Regal both have gotten in, you know, for their careers or whatever, I, they both could work. And they, they gave him lots of time. And they, yeah, it was decent. It was nothing spectacular, but certainly not a waste of 13 minutes. No, I, I always thought Steve Regal was a really good worker. I had a weird thought, and I was, I was wrong with this. I'm like, okay, Brian Adidas is the Texas heavyweight champion. Now, he is, that is now the secondary title to your Rick Rude world-class championship. And I'm like, okay. People tune in and they see Brian Adidas as the secondary champion, whereas you change the other channel and you've got Randy Savage. Then you've got the other channel where I was Nikita Koloff, the U.S. champion. No, Magnum T.A. was still U.S. champion. I think either Magnum T.A. or Nikita Koloff, it was Magnum. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is like a really, you know, one of these things is not like the other. And then I was like, that's dumb. It's just the Texas title. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, one is one is intercontinental. It's a bigger title. One is the you know United States, and one is is Texas. So the guy yeah. shouldn't necessarily be as big. But yeah, when your second title champion is Brian Adidas versus a megastar like Randy Savage or Nikita or Magnum or any of the other megastars that held the U.S. title, 
it doesn't hold up well, that's for sure. Well, I think I'm going to change my name to Johnny Bad Analogy because that, that analogy came out of my head. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but you know, it, it was a good secondary title. It was, it was good for guys like the grappler, Brian Adidas. It helped Gino Hernandez get over when he won both titles almost immediately when he came in in 1984. Yeah, I mean, the title definitely needed to be there. You need to have something besides the world champion. Yeah. And if you're going to hide the TV title on your one show, you got to have something that you can put on the regular Dallas show. That's not the world championship. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I agree for promotions this size. I agree with one secondary title. I can live with a TV title on the other one, but like if the world class added another singles title, I think it would be definitely too much. Well, agreed. When you've got nine guys on the roster, you can't have too many championships <laughs> like that. Nine guys on the roster is a problem on this afternoon, and we will get more into that in a moment. Next up, the returning gentleman Chris Adams and Brickhouse Brown defeating John Tatum and the Grappler in a tag match. Was this on TV, or did I just miss it? Yeah, this was on TV. It was actually a pretty decent match. Uh, nothing, nothing spectacular, but uh, there's something in the aftermath that I want to talk about. But yeah, this was you know this was decent. Not like said, nothing special, but it kind of. That's exactly the problem with the whole card. I mean, it's you're in the middle of the show. You've got a quote-unquote big tag match, and it's nothing special with four guys that aren't really going anywhere. Oh, no. And Chris Adams was returning to action after a fake eye injury. He wanted to go home to England for a while. Uh, and we'll talk more about Chris as this goes on. But it looked like he wasn't getting a big push based on what was going on during this afternoon. Obviously, that changed when when Kerry got hurt, but I mean, what, what thought did you have on this match? Cause I have a couple. Like I said, it, it was all right. And I thought Chris did a decent job of covering for the eye injury, you know, and I can't, I can imagine wrestling with a patch on is not real fun. No. You, you know, whether you're, you have vision problems or not, I imagine that's, you know, especially what if his vision is actually not great. Like for me, if I took my glasses off, I could see, okay. But if you cover one eye, now yeah. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have real problems. So you know, kudos to him for handling it well. And you know, Brickhouse is always fine, and Grappler's always fine. So you know, the match is fine. Four guys that know what they're doing, doing their thing, and it, you know, the result being okay. Yeah, the one thing I want to talk about: Missy Hyatt had just gotten in the business. I want to say like November or December 1985. So she's like six months in, and still brand new. And it was one of those things, like as soon as she got in, you know, she was Tatum's real life girlfriend. And in a way, I'm sure Tatum looked at her as a meal ticket. Like, wow, if I incorporate her into my act, I'm going to get big. But she was immediately too big a star to hitch to John Tatum. Yeah, she she kind of burst on the scene and has that like, like a larger than life presence. You know, she's never really been my cup of tea exactly, but I, you know, she certainly comes across well on TV and she was annoying as heck and was immediately a much bigger star than him. Yeah. And, you know, as someone watching this, you're like, okay, you're, you're, you're kind of nothing against John Tatum, who I thought was a talent, but he's not a big enough talent to pair with Missy Hyatt. Uh, absolutely. And, and then, and they kind of emphasize that, you know, with the early stuff where he was kind of a, you know, the simpering idiot hanging out with her like he's lucky to be with her well no kidding that, <laughs> just, that guy with that star level 
is definitely lucky to be with somebody like Missy Hyatt, you know, from a, a kayfabe perspective. Yeah, but I mean, you know, she she totally outshined him. And fast forward about ten years later, you've got uh, Sonny with the body Donnas, and it's like we know, like she just outshined them to death. And this was this was the first time I ever saw this happen. Yeah, exactly. Yep, absolutely. She outshined him. All right. One thing I've always noticed about world class championship wrestling, for some reason, it really stuck out in this match because Missy was at ringside. They have this large C of ringside seats that are not too far away from the ring. And the only thing separating the fans from the performers is this little rope that they have going from one end of the seats to the other. And I just not a lot of security for the wrestlers. Yeah. And it, and didn't that show up in this match? Cause after the match, Missy gets knocked out of the ring and the camera goes off of her. And then all of a sudden she's, flipping out, yelling and screaming and crying for some woman at ringside to be taken out while she's holding her back. And, yeah, I, I, and, it, and it was complete. It looked like it did not look like, you know, like a worked moment she looked like she was really, really mad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially, you know, I, I can see a little indie promotion that draws a hundred people that needs to cut costs, having the little rope or, I mean, I remember Jack witchies didn't have anything at all. But, I mean, get a guardrail, for God's sake. Well, you know, they had it a, a couple of years earlier when uh, that guy jumped up to, to face off with Terry Gordy, and that didn't work out so well for him either. Yeah, what the heck are you doing? Uh, just a single little rope? That's just, that's asking for trouble. And although they never really had trouble, I don't think. I don't think they had anybody jump in the ring or any any major issues. But, man, they certainly were they were playing with fire by having just that little bit of a divider like that for sure. Now I haven't seen it in a while, but if I recall correctly and I might not, the guy Gordy sent flying in 1983 was behind a rope. And if you guys, for those who don't know what we're talking about, this drunk guy in 1983 starts, gets up and starts taunting Terry Gordy. I don't know what he said to Terry Gordy, but Gordy immediately abandoned his post walks up to this guy. This guy puts up his hands like, oh, don't worry, uh, you know, no violence. And Gordy sends him into orbit. It was unreal. Yeah, he, he put two hands into the guy's chest and knocked him flying while the guy's, the guy's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. The, guy, the guy gets up and, like, gives him a thumbs up. <laughs> it was a great moment. I remember watching it on channel 25 uh, on Boston's channel 25 and thinking, Oh my God, I just saw something that was real. Yeah, that was a, it was a classic moment. And I, I loved it. I'm sure Gordy didn't get in any, in any trouble for that. That was beautiful. And I can't imagine what the heck's going through that guy's head to be wanting to square up with Terry Gordy, who at that time, you know, he was he 23 years old or whatever. And is a gigantic human being that will kill anyone. And this guy just decides that he's going to face off with Gordy. That is just not smart. He, he got away light. <laughs> like I said, I don't know what he said to Terry Gordy, because I'm sure Terry Gordy heard it every night, 300 nights a year or whatever his schedule was. And whatever this guy said must have been something special. Yeah, he, he certainly found the magic words. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have the world heavyweight champion, or at least they're telling us that. Rick Rude, managed by Percy Pringle, defeats Bruiser Brody by disqualification. It was a short match, but I thought it was a very good match. 
I think you liked it more than I did. I I thought it was it was okay. It would have been better with like I said earlier, like 1992 Rick Rude. He's just not quite good enough yet, and of course Bruiser's not really gonna put him over too strong. I thought it was okay, but at the same time, this is your main event, and it's just not good enough. And did anybody really think Bruiser was gonna win the world title? Really, I can't imagine. I mean, how many matches? What did he work? You know, a week here, a week there, a month here, a month there in Texas. It's not like he was going to stick around. No, I, I remember. I, I couldn't imagine Brody winning the belt. I mean, just you know, but he, I mean, it's kind of you know. And like you were saying about Rick Rude, I'm not sure he was ready for this spot. I'm not sure he was good enough for this spot. I, I definitely don't think he was a big enough name to carry as a world's heavyweight champion at this point. Yeah, and you know, and again, to have that as your main event on a stadium show just isn't quite good enough. Brody's a megastar, no question he's going to bring people in, but not in that spot. And, and and for me, I didn't like Percy Pringle either. I thought I hated his character, and so I thought he kind of dragged down Rick Rude a little bit. Uh, on this very show, maybe six months ago, probably longer than that, we talked about the worst managers of the 1980s, and I, Percy Pringle was my number one for the exact reasons you just went over. I think he prevented Rick Rude from getting over that character. You just couldn't take him seriously enough. Like, why would a world's heavyweight champion be running around with this guy? Yeah, what does Percy bring to the table that Rick Rude, the character, would actually want? Exactly. He doesn't seem like he's a financial wizard. It doesn't seem like he's a wrestling guru or any of that stuff. He's just, you know, he's just this guy. He doesn't, he brings nothing to the table. In Florida, they pushed the idea that he was, he was like a Jim Cornette. He had his mother's money. They really didn't explain that or do that in world class. You know, in one of the first vignettes with Percy, they showed him, and I want to say it was in an apartment or something like that, and he wasn't, you know, the fancy guy that he would become. They definitely did not let you think that he was rich, that's for sure. (laughs) I don't remember that segment, but if if they did it in an apartment, that's not good. One thing I noticed about Rick Rude, now we're, we're, we're saying he's not ready, but even by 1986 standards in wrestling... He had an insane physique on this day. Yeah, he sure did. Well, Rick always looked great, but man, he yeah, he looked fantastic on this day. And he and he didn't look uh, like he would later become kind of like disproportional with his legs being a little smaller. He kind of looked like all proportioned and just ripped to the gills. He was. I mean, there's I've never seen a wrestler with a physique exactly like Rick Roots. A lot of guys were you know bulkier, but that's not what he went for. No, he he went for really lean and really ripped, and it and it, it succeeded for him. It worked. He looked great. I want, I want to talk about Bruiser Brody a little bit. There are people who say that you know they couldn't have done Bruiser Brody at Hulk Hogan at a WrestleMania had had Brody not died. Rick Rude is a big guy, right? And Bruiser Brody is a head taller than Rick Rude and a lot thicker. He made I mean he's such a big guy. He made Rude look small. He did, you know, he really made, he, yeah, like you said, Rick is a big, big guy and Brody just absolutely dwarfs him. Yeah. The size, definitely a stark contrast between the two. Yeah. All right. Then we get the main event, which is, well, I, I, 
it's kind of positioned as the main event. It, it's got the Von Erichs in it. It was scheduled as the fabulous Freebirds, Hayes, Gordy, and Roberts against Kerry, Kevin, and and Lance Von Erich. It was a Canadian lumberjack match with Fritz Von Erich at ringside, and he was going to whoop Michael Hayes behind. Uh, it turned out to be Steve Simpson subbing for Kevin Von Erich. Uh, Kevin is out there with his arm in a sling. There's no question in my mind that if there was any way Kevin could have gutted it through this match, he would have. Uh, and for him, for him to be out of the Texas Stadium show, unable to perform, just goes to show you like how much Kevin was breaking down by this point. Yeah, I thought the same thing. There was never any doubt in my head that he was legit injured and that he, it must have been really bad if he's not on this card. You know, because that, it's their, like you said, it's their WrestleMania. And for the second biggest star in the family to not work the show means he had to have been really messed up. Now, Kevin, you know, say what you want about Kevin. He was a warrior. And if he, you know, if he couldn't go, he definitely legit couldn't go. Absolutely. No question about that. All right. Fritz von Erich. Let's talk about him for a minute. I turned 56 years old in a couple of weeks, in about four weeks. Fritz von Erich is 56 years old here. And if I could go bring him back in time to 2021, I could introduce him as my dad, no problem. That is the oldest 56-year-old I've ever seen. You're kidding. He was 56 on this show? <laughs> According to Wikipedia. Wow. I mean, I, I know I, in my head, I know he's always that he always looked older than he was. But yeah, no kidding. He's 56. Oh, he my goodness. He would have passed for 86. Uh at least oh, 75, at least right. 75 or 76. Yeah, no quite. I mean, he, the only thing he didn't have for an old guy is that, you know, a lot of older people kind of, they slim down and kind of, and they kind of lose their flesh kind of loosens up a little bit. Fritz definitely did not do that. He was still a huge guy and still completely filled out, but yeah, he looked really old for 56 for sure. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of Fritz von Erich matches from his his career from the from the prime of his career, and for the six for the late fifties, early sixties, that was a big big guy. Oh yeah, yeah, I've I've seen one or two. They showed they did a special on him on, on and showed some of his stuff where he actually worked under his real name, and they had to explain it on the TV show. And he yeah, he was huge for the fifties and sixties, and still even in nineteen eighty six. He's a big guy. He's definitely he's standing next to other wrestlers. He does not stick out as being undersized. He still kind of looks like a threatening presence, despite yeah. looking like he's 75 years old. Now, one curveball they gave me in this match, Kerry Von Erich gets pinned clean in the middle by Terry Gordy. It didn't happen very often in Texas, but when someone needed to get over Kerry was there for them. He lost pretty clean to Gino Hernandez. He lost pretty clean to Rick Rude. And today he loses clean to Terry Gordy and gets eliminated. This was, I hadn't pointed that out. This is an elimination match. Yeah. He was the first guy gone and he didn't last very long. It was only, only three or four minutes. And then, yeah, he takes a close, I think it was a double clothesline or something. And then boom, one, two, three, right in the middle of the ring. No funny business. And he's gone. Yeah. And and you know what? I I don't know if they knew that the Freebirds were on their way out. If they did, that's kind of a mistake. Yeah, and I, I wonder if they were trying 
you know, with the way the the match ended up, I wonder if they were trying to 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 push Lance as being a, a megastar, even though he wasn't going to be around much longer either. I wonder, if, you know, if Kevin had been healthy, what would the what would the match have looked like? Would Kevin have gotten the win? Would Kerry have gotten it? Would it still have been Lance? I, that I don't know. The word Lance, and then right next to it, my notes: Superman in capital letters. Before we get to Lance, Steve Simpson. I did not think he was a good choice as a stand-in in this match. You've got Kerry, who's a legitimate star. All three of the Freebirds are stars. Lance is the upcoming superstar. And Steve is just this, you know, I like Steve Simpson enough, but he's this little guy in the middle of it. Yeah, I think they were trying to elevate him by by doing that, but wouldn't it make more sense to put Brian Adidas in there? It would have made a lot more sense. Because he's the the quote unquote family friend, and I realized that he'd already worked a match, but so had so had Steve Simpson. Yeah, he he definitely stands out. And I know you know that they were eventually trying to push that the you know the Simpsons and the Von Erichs were friends, and then Sean comes over and all of that jazz. But yeah, he you know you got the Freebirds, all three of the Freebirds on one side. You got Kevin and Lance, and then the other guy on the other side. Yeah, they could have easily used Brian Adidas. I think that would have made the most sense. Chris Adams would have made a little bit of sense, but he hadn't made up with the Von Erichs yet. So I, this is this is Brian Adidas' spot. Absolutely. Agreed completely. Well, so Steve Simpson gets eliminated, and I think we all knew what was going to happen next. It is Lance Von Erich against all three Freebirds in, in the elimination match. Now, you could be eliminated by being thrown over the top rope, so at least all three Freebirds didn't get pinned, but we all saw what was coming. Yeah. Yep. I, I, you know, I think Michael was actually already gone. I think it was just, I think only Gordy and, uh, you are correct. Gordy and, uh, buddy were left. Yeah, you're, you're correct. I'm, I'm reading past my notes. I do have it in there. And of course we get the new surprise. We did this with Mike, uh, doing it to Jake Roberts, Christmas, 1984 Lance now knows how to use the iron claw. Yep. And he does it left-handed for some reason, even though he's a right-handed wrestler. (laughs) <laughs> and it, and of course it it just looks amazing and clearly just debilitated Buddy immediately. And I wish I could remember what Lance said in his book about that. But he I remember him saying that it was a big deal that he was using the claw for the first time, and it looked about as good as when Mike did it the first time. I will say this: the place went wild. Yeah, I mean it worked. They they definitely they protected that hold. They did despite the fact that guys hardly ever lost to it. You know, it certainly was over, and for, if the whole time those guys were on top, it definitely worked. But yeah. yeah, all right. And then finally, we have the barbed wire match: Bruiser Brody against Terry Gordy. This did not air on World Class TV, but it did air on World Pro Wrestling in Japan. I had it at one point. I don't. I don't know what I did with the tape, but I remember it being a very good match. So my notes, I actually did go back and rewatch it because I do still have it. I, my notes on it said that it wasn't very good, but watching it again uh, this morning, I liked it a lot more. I re- it was it was more bloody and a little more violent than I remembered it being. Still not great, and they actually, I didn't think they used the barbed wire all that well. They did go into it a little bit, but they didn't throw guys into it, and and you know it it worked as a, as a match. But they actually worked one spot where Bruiser threw Gordy into the ropes and he ran the ropes like normal. 
<laughs> which doesn't, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a barbed wire match. I mean, the match, like I said, the match worked. It was okay. It was pretty good. Uh, you know, Bruiser gets the pin with the using a foreign object to whack Gordy on the head, and and there's plenty of blood and all of that. But the thing that stood out for me is both of these guys work title matches on the same day. So yeah, you know, it, from a kayfabe perspective, it doesn't make any sense to have guys t- wrestle two big matches on the same day because they're obviously not going to be ready for one or the other. And plus you're right. And you're saying from a kayfabe perspective, that's what we were conditioned to seeing one match per guy and world-class would do this on their stadium shows. And I didn't agree with this instead of just flying a couple of guys in, bringing in a couple of guys from mid South. I don't know bringing someone up from Mexico, having a women's match, anything, anything other than having the guys work twice, but they, they did it all the time. Texas stadium and cotton ball. Yeah. And it really stood out on this show because they, you know, especially with Kevin out with Mike out, you know, the roster was really depleted. And now you got, you got Adams working twice. You got Simpson working twice, Gordy, Brody, all these guys working twice. It just doesn't work. I agree with you. And speaking of depleted rosters, world-class championship wrestling was never the same after this event. This was a going away party for them by May 25th. So this is three weeks later, Hayes and Roberts make their debut on bill watch UWF television. Terry Gordy went to Japan a week after this show and he immediately coming back, went to bill watch UWF. So the Freebirds are gone. Within that same month, Missy Hyatt, John Tatum, Missing Link, Iceman Parsons, Skandor Akbar, and One Man Gang, just from this show alone, were recruited by Bill Watts and Ken Mantell, and they're now wrestling for Mid-South. So basically, except for the Von Erichs and Chris Adams, your roster is gone, and Rick Rudin as well, and and Bruiser Brody part-time. Yeah, and they immediately were all freshened up when they went to Watts. Yes. And he he immediately used them really well. He brought in the Freebirds, treated them like megastars, signed them to the first million-dollar contract, and suddenly they were elevated to a level they hadn't been in two years in Dallas. Immediately, like overnight. That million-dollar contract angle was fantastic. You know, and it's probably not all that far off from what they actually made. I bet they were probably making, what do you think they were each making? Maybe 200? Maybe I'm thinking around 200. You know, that's that's pretty good money for, for that time that time frame. And they, they certainly used them right. Now, wasn't there something with Fritz and Ken Mantell, like it was kind of personal that uh, Mantell took all of those guys? I don't remember hearing it. I don't remember the exact story. Wasn't there something behind it, though? Um, I remember that hearing that there was a falling out between Fritz and Mantell. I mean, obviously there's a reason he's no longer there. Uh, it might've been a, a retaliation on a personal level, but if you think about it, it makes sense from a business standpoint because Watts is going national and he is also going to raid Fritz's territory. He's gonna promote in Dallas, Fort Worth, Oklahoma city, et cetera. So it, it makes sense to lure as many world-class stars as you can and give them fresh opponents. Yeah. And he also started taping the power pro show right there in Fort worth, mm-hmm. you know, at the, at, in the Metro comp in the Metroplex area there. And yeah, it makes perfect sense. And those guys were pushed the angles and the pushes that they got were different in, in the Fort worth, the power pro show 
than they were on the main UWF show. They were both, they were still stars, but it was just handled just a little bit differently. So yeah, from a business perspective, makes perfect sense. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about more about the significance of that, but let's talk about people leaving world-class Steve Regal, who was a, a good guy to have around was soon going to JCP and wouldn't last long there. And then he went to the WWF as an enhancement role. Okay. I don't, well, I don't remember that at all. I certainly don't remember him in the WWF. I don't remember him in JCP. Was he, was he there 20 minutes? I don't remember that at all. He wasn't there very long. He was kind of Jim Garvin's sidekick for a little while. And then he went to the WWF and he was, they, they put him strictly in an enhancement role, which I mean, I, I talked to a wrestler who did exactly that. And he was like, look, you know, the WWF gave me a paycheck every week, which, you know, the place he left kind of didn't. It makes sense. Um, I'm sure he was making, you know, a, a decent living. And that's a role where he can be very useful. He can be put in with guys and truly do that enhancement thing. Because he, like he, he was good enough in the ring that he could carry a young guy and make him look good. And he certainly was willing to bump and to fly all over the place and make guys look good. Yeah, poor Steve Regal. He goes from AWA tag team champion to WWF enhancement talent in less than a year. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they know that they always treated the AWA thing as kind of a, a fluke, but boy, yeah, he certainly plummeted in a hurry. Yeah, he did. All right, now, as if they haven't lost enough talent, Chris Adams is leaving, is gone by the beginning of September. What happened with Chris was, and this is what I heard a long time ago, he got an offer to go to the UWF and he turned it down. Dallas was a little bit less money, but he liked living in Dallas, having the the lifestyle that he had. The world-class guys got home just about every night, whereas the UWF guys didn't always, and Bill Watts had no problem sending you 400 miles both ways to a spot show where you're not always on the interstate. So Adam stayed for a little while, and then in June, he's flying home from a show in Puerto Rico, and he's overserved and being, I don't know, a pain in the ass on the airplane. And the, one of the co-pilots is like, all right, don't serve this guy any more alcohol. And Adams assaults the co-pilot. Kevin Von Erich allegedly, you know, Chris is screaming at the guy. Kevin Von Erich has to restrain him. And there are air marshals waiting for Mr. Adams as he lands in Dallas. The story I heard was that, and I heard it from someone who worked world-class. One of the benefits of working world-class was if you got into a scrape with the law, Fritz von Erich was wealthy and influential enough to help you. Chris Adams, now this, everything I just said, I know is hundred percent true. It's verified. This is the part that's not verified. Chris Adams, you know, asked Fritz for help in this. And Fritz says, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I need to save my get out of jail free cards for Kevin, Kerry, Mike, and Chris. I I could see that. And it was also, if I remember right, this got a little bit of mainstream publicity possibly before Fritz could have handled it quietly. It was a big story at the time, you know, because he had butted the guy in the face or whatever. And and hurt him pretty bad. I think there was a lawsuit too. I don't know that Fritz would have been able to cover it up as quickly and as easily as say a Vince McMahon with something even worse could have. I mean, I, I could see a scenario where Fritz, you know, had knows or at least has contact with a judge who says, you know, hey, you know, give him probation or something like that. He's a first time offender. 
I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sure Fritz had some guys that he could have called on him, but maybe, maybe this was just the breaking point. Maybe, you know, maybe there was 20 other things that we didn't hear about because it's not like, it's not like Chris was a stable, calm individual the whole time he was in, in Texas. So maybe he had done some other stuff that we just didn't hear about. And this was the breaking point. And Fritz was just saying, screw it. Let him go rot. rot." Yeah, that, that is a definite possibility. I mean, Chris, We've all heard the stories about, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. Once he has one too many in him, he turns into a really bad guy. Yeah. Yep. Uh, exactly. All right. So that was my Chris Adams story. Rick Rude is also gone middle of September. The story I heard about Rick Rude was he was getting offers to come into JCP where he eventually wound up. He had an offer from the WWF, but the WWF's offer was the standard offer. Sign your contract and we'll figure it out. And if it doesn't work out for you too bad. And I also heard that Vern Gagne offered Rick Rude at this time, the AWA title, Rick, come home and we'll make you world's heavyweight champion. So this guy had some options. Well, I hadn't heard that about the AWA. That makes sense. If that was the option, I'm not sure why he chose that instead of going to to JCP where he was strictly a tag team guy with another guy who's that I can't stand Paul Jones as his manager. You know, it seems like you, you know, to go to the, the one that's on national TV on ESPN every week as their world champion, that seems like it makes a better decision. Plus it's home. Uh, yeah. I mean, the AWA was already like had already taken major water at this point. And my understanding is he sat down, Rick Rude sat down with Dusty and Crockett, and they basically assured him that he was going to get a big push. They were going to start by making him the uh, part of the NWA World Tag Team Champions with Manny Fernandez, which was a nice spot. And then they were going to make him a single and give him a big push. Yeah, I can. I mean, I can see it. And maybe, maybe Rick was forward thinking enough to say that you know there, that life was not going to be good in the AWA and that it was. That it was going downhill. And you're like you said, yeah, the World Tag Team Championship was, especially in 1986-87 in JCP, that's a really good spot. And you're going to make a lot of money doing that. It just seems odd to not take the world title in your hometown, to not go to the WWF, you know, and take a tag team spot instead. And of course, the singles push ended up never happening. No, it didn't. Uh, Rick Root actually wound up walking out of JCP summer of 1987. He made up this crazy story about, you know, Ivan Koloff and Manny Fernandez are the new champions. And then they show us footage of the Rock and Roll Express beating Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez. In Spokane, Washington, my hometown. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah they, they showed a, What's funny about that is that they showed that match on TV twice. They showed it when it happened because it was a non-title match and they used it to hype up the, the rematch of the Rock and Roll Express. And then months later, they show it as a title switch. As if they hadn't shown it on TV earlier. I never knew that. So they, they got that one past me. What they didn't get past me was it was summertime in North Carolina and people were at the arena with coats. So that's when I was like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. But yeah, yeah, people aren't wearing the jackets to the, to the arena in Greensboro in the summer. That's for sure. All right. Now, the biggest loss that world-class championship wrestling took, obviously, was June 4th, 1986, when Kerry was in a motorcycle accident that almost killed him. He was flying around wearing nothing but a pair of athletic shorts, barefoot, no helmet, 
and he slammed into the back of a police cruiser, almost got killed, and his career was never the same after that. I didn't realize it was quite that soon after the Texas Stadium show. But yeah, he it, it's a miracle that he, he had a career at all and that it was as good as it was because he, yeah. was, he still was good after this. You know, for him to survive that is just unbelievable because it's not like he was slowing down when he hit that police car. He, absolutely, he was, you know, wasted out of his mind or whatever and drills the car. And how he survived, let alone walked again, let alone wrestle again, is beyond my comprehension. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, it's not like he was going, you know, j- he was just going faster than this car that was driving. It was a parked car. I don't know how you wind up doing that, but of course I do. Yeah, yeah. There, there's you don't have to guess as to how that happened. Oh man! So we're closing out a very important, I think, four weeks of wrestling history. Like things are changing very quickly in April and May of 1986. World class, as I mentioned, they drew 23,000 people. By the end of the summer, that was a decidedly minor league looking promotion. I mean, you've got Al Madrill and Brian Adidas as your top heels against Kevin Von Erich and Chris Adams, who's kind of lost in the shuffle anyway. Oh, he was on his way out anyway. And I remember just, you know, that moment where they brought out Madrill and Adidas as the top heels. And I'm like, okay, world-class wrestling is dead. Yeah, they they didn't just kind of roll downhill a little bit. They went off a cliff there. You know, they lost all of their talent other than Kevin Von Erich and Chris Adams, basically. And he was gone, and Adams was gone right not long after. They got completely decimated. And yeah, imagine if you're Fritz, what do you do? What do you do to make it better? You know, half your roster is now working for Watts. Some other guys have gone to JCP or gone to the WWF. You're left with your son and his friend. And the fake Von Erich is now gone as well. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, uh, Lance left uh, summer of 1983. And even before he left, I mean, that, you know, the promotion had crumbled. I'm going to say this about Vern Gagne, too. It's like, at some point, you think about closing shop, but it's all Fritz and Vern knew. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure that they still made money. You know, it's just, I'm sure that they were still able to draw some people. But, yeah, what are you going to do? You're only, Fritz is 56 years old. Did he have enough money that he could retire? Maybe. Maybe if he sells some land. You know, sell sell some land or whatever. He could easily retire, but maybe he's looking out for his kids. You know, what's what's Kevin gonna do? What's, yeah, I, what's what's Mike gonna do? I mean, Kevin Kevin would have had options. I, I options to go to JCP. Options maybe to go to the WWF. I don't think Mike and Chris would have had those options. Well, Chris for sure wouldn't have had them unless he's going as an announcer or something. Because he's you know he was. There's no way he was ever going to be a wrestler at you know five foot six or whatever he was and yeah kevin kevin's gonna have options he could have gone to japan as well mike if mike goes anywhere he's not gonna be a star that's for sure no i think if anything he would go to a place like portland as a favor to fritz now i don't even think that's gonna happen i mean but yeah i and let's talk about the awa for a little while uh Russell rock took place sunday april 20th it drew 23,000 fans, which it was the Metrodome, so it looked a little bit empty, but that's still an, an impressive house. Yeah, you know, it is a pretty good sh- pretty good draw. And, they, and really, up until Wrestle Rock, 
the AWA was still drawing well. They drew well all through 1985. They continued to draw well into 1986. They got the national TV show on ESPN, so that was helping. They drew the nice card at the Metro, but what's funny is that stadium, they drew the same number of people as Texas Stadium, but it looked way more empty than it did in Texas. World-class since about the middle of 1982. I know they had the same production crew as the Dallas Mavericks. Dallas Mavericks owner, like, kind of... buys his own creates his own production company it's like okay what what am i going to do with this when the mavericks aren't playing they were only playing 82 games a year and supposedly they approached fritz von eric and said you know would you like to use this pardon the pun world-class production values and fritz said yes and then it really made a big difference on tv say what you want about world-class that was good-looking tv yeah you know at back when i first started tape trading and stuff like that. I was never really impressed with how it looked. I thought it kind of looked Bush League. I never really appreciated it. But then when I went back and rewatched it again in high def, watched those four years and really took a look at it, it was the production was light years ahead of everybody else, even ahead of the WWF, where they had really high production quality and certainly way, way, way ahead of AWA and their their horrible production and JCP with their hard camera in a high school gym look. They were way, way ahead of everybody, especially lighting. Everything was really well lit, really bright, really clear and easy to see. I, that was my point. I mean, the AWA had as big a crowd and they made it look like a small, their poor production facility made it look like a small crowd or as world-class knew what they were doing and made it look like a good crowd. Yep. For Wrestle War, our friend and future and former co-host Brad Breitzman was there, and he said it sucked. Yeah, Russell, Russell Rock is that's just a bad show. There's and it's funny because they, unlike world class, you know, they the guys pretty much wrestled only once. There was a ton of talent on the show, and yet it's completely flat. It just did not work at all. No, it, it was very flat, and I I've see, I haven't seen the show in a while, but I've seen it, and a lot of the matches that looked good on paper just didn't really deliver, but they had a ton of talent on that show, and I don't think most of these guys worked the AWA ever again. Bruiser Brody, the Road Warriors, Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, Harley Race, Rick Martell. Uh, Harley Race came back in like 89, 90, but that doesn't matter. Uh, Barry Windham, Mike Rotundo. And the fabulous ones all showed up for this, and I don't think they any of them ever came back. Yeah, I think you're right. It was they. This was the the last hurrah. If or some of them, it was the, like their only appearance because Wyndham and Rotundo that was their only AWA match. Yeah, because they were and they worked the Crockett Cup the day before. I think they did anywhere. The fabulous ones did. I know for sure. You know, that was their their last shot for all of those guys, and it kind of showed because they certainly weren't trying to leave a good impression. No. <laughs> so, and then another dagger to the AWA. Stan Hansen leaves in a huff after being told last minute that he was going to lose the AWA title to Nick Bockwinkel after he had promised Giant Baba in Japan and Vern had promised Stan Hansen that he was going to go to Japan as AWA champion. And Hansen vacating that belt the way he did made the AWA look so bad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the funny thing about that is, so what the AWA decides they're going to put their title on Nick Bockwinkle. What did they do the night before? What was on T? What was the night before? The night before was their live ESPN special. 
which was really the last hurrah for the AWA. And they had Nick go out and lay down clean one, two, three to Nord the Barbarian on national TV. And they're going to put the title on him the next day. That was the AWA Battle by the Bay on ESPN. And that, that did air the day before, the night before. And I just couldn't help. I, I watched it live. And I'm like, this looks so minor league. It drew, I don't know what it drew. It wasn't listed. But it was at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. The place looked empty. Yeah, it it definitely looked bad. You know, I thought it was a good show. I thought there was, you know, the Bachwinkle Barbarian match was good. Hanson and Blackwell was a good match. The six man was all right. I thought it was a, a good show, better than Wrestle Rock. But yeah, the, from a just from a pure aesthetic perspective, that was a big, spectacular live national TV show, and it looked worse than the average world class show from four years earlier. <laughs> it definitely did. So I'm going to wrap this up by saying that you know, spring 1986. 35 years ago, I mean, there was such a, a change going on in the wrestling business. The AWA had this really big show that drew a big crowd, and that was the last hurrah for them. By the end of the summer, they looked like toast. Same exact thing for world-class championship wrestling. And then after having the cooperation going on between Bill Watts and Jim, Jim Crockett at the 1986 Crockett Cup, they kind of went to war not long afterward. Yeah, they... There was a, just a little, they, it lasted just a little bit longer because uh, Flair defended the title against Ricky in New Orleans, I think it was, in June. But yeah, that, that cooperation wasn't long lasting. So now you've got Crockett and Watts and McMahon all going at it with Fritz and Vern just on their deathbeds, basically, as a promotion. Yeah, and it, it wasn't like that coming into the spring of 86. You kind of wrapped that up nicely. A lot of changes going on. Yeah, it was an incredible time to be a fan. And even though they were they were dying off, there was still good to see in the AWA. There was still some good stuff to see in the in world class, you know. And they were a nice alternative to what you were getting from the WWF or even Jim Crockett or even Watts. There was definitely enough to go around. And then, you know, three or four months later, not so much. Yeah, it was a good time to be a fan because there was so much television. I mean, you know, if you like that, and I do, I mean, the, the WWF had two hours a week of TV, plus Saturday night's main event, plus the Boston Garden shows on Nesson. Crockett had his endless list of TV shows. World Class was on in Boston. AWA was on WPIX cable. I did not get UWF, but most people did. So like you said, it was a good time to be a fan. Yeah, I got I got the AWA on ESPN. I got... Uh... At least one of the two shows for the UWF, I got the Saturday night show for World Championship Wrestling. I got, uh, I think it was four hours because uh, the WWF had, I think, two regular shows, plus they had prime time oh, yeah. uh, on as well. So, yeah, there was a ton of stuff to watch, and some of it was actually good. I enjoyed getting the UWF especially. But, yeah, if you were a fan, there was certainly plenty to choose from and plenty to watch. Yeah, well... Like I said, the, the world was, was changing quickly, and we had these four big shows, and by the time the summer started, it, the party was over for the AWA and World Class. Yeah, pour a glass out for those guys. Uh, they put on a last hurrah, and that was that. That was that. Tape, thanks for coming on and being the guest. It was an excellent show. I appreciate it, John. I, you know, I, I appreciate you asking me. One of these days, you're going to let me talk about shoot style, I think, I, or I hope. But uh, I do appreciate you having me back on. I'm always available or always happy to come on if I'm available. So thank you very much for having me back. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, 
I want to thank everyone for listening. Please come back and listen again next week. I want to thank our wonderful producer, Lightning Lim- Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Everyone stay safe. This concludes our... Wait, did John say the Cow Palace? Get ready for bonus content, folks. Okay, uh, one correction there. The Battle by the Bay that the AWA <laughs> did. Wasn't it the Cow Palace? It was in Oakland. It was in Oakland at the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center, which is just kind of a dinky place that I forget how long ago it closed. It was essentially the one of the, the two venues you could book if the Cow Palace and the Coliseum Arena were not available. Ah, so. okay. As soon as, soon as you said that, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't in San Francisco. It wasn't at the Cow well, Palace. I'm like, I, I know thought, it's you know in what? Oakland. I could have sworn, you know what I, you say, when you said that, that made sense. I thought it was San Francisco. I did. I did not realize that it was in Oakland. Cagematch.net says it was at the convention center and then it drew 1500. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's, that's brutal. Are we still recording? Well, yeah. Let's use this. Let's just like roll it out. Just like this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So fifteen hundred, even with the the post wrestling concert by Tower of Power, that's that's <laughs> they had a concert after you, they did that up. Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow. The Kaiser, I think I went to the Kaiser for one Crockett show, and yeah, just an old venue. Mainly Crockett would they'd have their shows at the what's now the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in downtown San Francisco because WWF had a WWF and AWA actually both ran shows at the Cow Palace. So I don't know if they were just muscled out there. Huh? Because I I know the WWF for the most part insisted on being exclusive under the guise that someone might show up for WWF tickets and mistakenly buy the other tickets for the other promotion. Obviously they're just trying to run everyone else out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the AWA started in the very dying days of Roy Shire's promotion. So they were at the Coliseum Arena in Oakland. I forget when they started running at the Cow Palace, but... I think 81 or 82. Yeah. And then WWF came in in 84, so... Right. Florida, the Florida promotion actually tried going to San Francisco in 1981, and it didn't mm-hmm. draw, and it wasn't worth wasn't well, worth the trip. that was... Um, in that period of time of three or four months, it was Roy Shire who ran CWF television oh, okay. in the Bay Area, and he got Eddie Graham's guys to come in. And that was that's how you got Dusty Rhodes as the last U.S. champion in, that's the, funny. in the Shire territory. So, I mean, the only other kind of outlaw invasion would have been like late, mid to late 79 when Murdoch and Mulligan, when they owned Amarillo came into San Jose, and I think they had a show up in uh, Santa Rosa, about an hour north of San Francisco. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So Amarillo guys, lesson here. <laughs> Amarillo guys are flying to San Jose. Tampa guys are flying to San Francisco. Yeah. And McMahon's the guy who started the war. Well, and, right. and you got Ole going up to Saginaw, Michigan in 83. Yeah. yeah, yeah. McMahon's the one who started it. No, McMahon's yeah. just the one who won. 
Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, Roy Shire's uh, slow demise was kind of mind-bending, I guess, because he stopped doing uh, local television, and then he stopped running a circuit and just had shows at the Cow Palace. But he showed, at first, he showed Portland TV in the Bay Area and brought in Don Owens' guys. And then after... What year was that? 79. Okay, so Portland was still pretty strong back then. Oh, yeah. And then uh, somewhere around late 79, early 80, uh, somewhere in that time, he switched from Don Owens' territory to Central States. So he was bringing him. <sighs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, by around, I want to say September or October of 80, he made a deal with Eddie Graham. <laughs> <laughs> the only one of those that makes any sense at all is Portland because it's sort of close and it's a yeah. quality product. Right. I mean, Florida is a quality product, but you can't afford to fly those guys in. Yeah, no kidding. So. I mean, my mind's blown. We were talking about lighting on TV shows. My television set is off. It looks like Central States Wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with with well, their ring that's about 12 feet wide and... Oh my God! They're, yeah, they're they were even probably so bad. Yeah, and I think they were still in the TV studio. They weren't at the Memorial Arena in KC at that time. So uh, it boggles my mind that someone who once made a living promoting wrestling is going to fly guys in from Kansas City and put on that show and think it's going to make money. Yeah, yeah. Was Kansas City making money? Probably at well, this time, yes. In, in, did, so, they, did they make money after like 1968? I, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it's fun. I've never heard anybody say anything good about Kansas City or Central States. I know that, you know, Harley owned it and I know they, they paid the guys like 25 cents a night or whatever, but there was never any talent there other than Harley. All I've ever heard is that the show sucked that the uh, matches sucked and that it didn't draw. So how did it last? Who made money? Yeah. I got three words for you. Bulldog, Bob Brown. Well, exactly. That guy. <laughs> so somehow that guy was a star and he couldn't work at all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's my Kansas city story. I know someone who went to the, the, the show in 89 when they had the rock and roll express against the bulldogs. Oh uh, Yeah. And they, I mean, this person's not going to make this up. I, they saw Bob Geigel cleaning up a mess with a mop. Oh God. I, I don't think we'll see Vince McMahon doing that. You know, that wouldn't surprise me. What was it? Did, did Baba give him the mop and tell him to do it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, they, well, I mean, how many, they only, what did that draw? 300 people. So your friend was there. That's amazing. He was flying from the West Coast to Philadelphia and did a stopover. You know, that, Meltzer. Oh, Meltzer, yeah. Well, and he he actually got uh, he's on the the videotape, the commercial tape that got released of that match. He got he got a a credit on the screen for that. Okay, nice, nice little production. Uh. <laughs> Which is what's funny is that that got released as a commercial tape, like so, so Central States, because it wasn't released by the AWA. Central States released it. Like it's got to be the only uh-huh. tape they ever released. One match, thirty minutes long, and Meltzer gets a credit on it. <laughs> what? And I'm what sure, the heck? I'm sure Bulldogs, the Bulldogs, and Ricky and Robert got every cent they were owed for royalties on that tape. Snicker, I'm, snicker. 
I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure they got everything. Oh, penny. you bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got the I'm royalties. Sure Mel- yeah. I'm sure Meltzer got big money for his credit, too. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> we got a little overtime on Stick to Wrestling this week. Lou, thanks for, uh, thanks for chiming in because I don't want to give out incorrect information. Okay. And no worries. I'll splice that in. No, do the whole thing. Like, like right now, like include it. Oh, include like the last 10, 15 minutes. Okay. So like an Easter egg. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gotta be Greek Easter or something, right? <laughs> sure. Greek Easter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm right, sure. Once, once again, everyone, thanks for listening. Enjoy your week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Thank you.